everyone and welcome to another Scots We Hey podcast. And today we're talking all things Ringwood Publishing with Chief Executive Sandy Jimison. Hello Sandy. Hello. And one of Ringwood's authors, Dr Anne Pettigrew. Hello Anne. Nice to be here. Um, Sandy, if we could start with you, could you give us a little bit of background to Ringwood Publishing? Yes, about um, 20 years ago or so, uh, a group of friends and myself um, came to an understanding of how very difficult it was for new Scottish authors to get published um, and that it was nothing to do with talent but it was to do with the, the changing priorities of established uh, publishers and uh, the the growing um, accountancy domination of the, the the publishing world where you needed a name to guarantee sales and mm-hmm. if you were a new writer with no name your chances of getting uh, your first book published were virtually zero. Yeah. So we decided uh, we formed a cooperative with a view to uh, concentrating on giving first publishing opportunity to uh, Scottish writers uh, of quality who otherwise would not be published, and that has remained our priority over the years. So it's mainly um, first novels or first books? Well, yes, we, we start with the first novels of uh, novelists, but um, because... Because it takes time, even with a published novel, for the name to become known and the quality to become known, we also give our writers a a guarantee that their subsequent books will be published too, Uh subject to them being of the same acceptable quality. Um, And we've always had a philosophy and a realisation that um, if any of our authors are particularly successful, um, bigger publishers like sharks will uh, <laughs> circle around the water and snap them up and we, we offer all our authors a guarantee that if a bigger publisher does come in for them we won't stand in the way of whatever contracts say or anything and that's happened with two or three of our authors over the years they've moved on um, but we at least allow our authors to establish themselves with two, three, four books and hope by then the, the word is out about them. So you started this uh, cooperative yourself and friends and it was to publish your own, not just your own, but the, the group of uh, people involved their own work, is that right? Yes, um, but very quickly it, um, it spread to accepting submissions from... Uh, we've restricted it to, um, and there was some argument about this, but we've restricted submissions that we would consider to either Scots or people living in Scotland. Okay, and 20 years ago, I'm trying to think what the publishing landscape was like back then, was there a lot of other independent small um, publishers or was it mainly your Cangate and the, the Polygon yeah, and the larger ones? There, there are remarkably few um, Scottish publishers uh, of fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, to the, the ludicrous position uh, and they're the disappearing um, day mm. by day. Yes. Uh, the ludicrous position a few years ago, Ringwood was the third biggest uh, contemporary fiction publisher in Glasgow and then uh, Freight swallowed cargo and we became the second biggest 
then freight went bankrupt and we're now the biggest, um, which is a nonsense given how small we are, but it's a sad state of affairs. It, it absolutely is. I, I actually worked for Cargo and I completely understand that uh, even then, it was like even having three or four or five small publishers in the city was something to celebrate and there that kind of demise is, is, is such a shame. Um, so Anne, how did you become involved with uh, Ringwood? Well, uh, when I retired, um, I thought I would like to write a book. Then I discovered it was actually very difficult. And then I um, decided that I would have to go back to university because I had no idea how to structure a book. <laughs> so I embarked on creative writing classes at uni at Glasgow and I absolutely loved it. Tremendous tutors, Pam, Pamela Ross and Alan McMonagall and a girl called Cathy McSporran who's been sending on the book. She's mm-hmm. terrific. So Cathy... Uh, took my book and said well get rid of the first three chapters and I think it's pretty good which was very upsetting because my husband had already told me the first three chapters added nothing to it so um, I finished this book and sent it out to people who seemed enthusiastic and started sending it off via the people listed in the writers and artists yearbook as I was told was the thing to do so I sent it off to about a dozen agents and publishers in it, mainly in England and got virtually nothing back or else little things saying oh well maybe um, it might have some merit but we can't do anything about it just now so then I sent off to I think six or seven Scottish publishers every one of whom replied mm-hmm. um, Freight were very interested but sadly met their demise mm-hmm. and not long after they got the full manuscript, I don't think the two things were linked but it was, um, <laughs> and then um, I uh, had very very nice feedback from Berlin and from various other people, Kranachan and Saraband were very helpful, but they were very caught up with their wonderful book by Burnett, who won yeah. a big prize. So um, I was, I'd started in the second one, and the, it, you know, the computer bleeps up, I think, and it was said Ringwood Publishing, and the title was just Submission, and I thought, oh, it's another one that, thank you very much, very good book, but we haven't got any room for it. So I actually, I think, ignored it for a couple of days, and then opened my emails, and I said, oh, we really like this, can we have the whole manuscript? And... Then I met uh, the wonderful Eleni, who's moved on to the higher things, and then I um, had a glass of wine in the curlers, which features in the book with Sandy, and the rest is history. And I really like their ethos that it's non-profit. Um, and some profits of my book are going to plan to big children's charity pushing girls' education, so um, uh, they've been great. Uh, their editorial staff were very meticulous um, and uh, picked up all sorts of things, and I couldn't say... Bad word about them. Uh, well, which well, that's a really interesting one in how um, writers find their publishers because often they find, it seems to me, they do find the right publishers eventually, you know, and, and when mm. they work together, it's a good yes. fit. Um, from your point of view, Sandy, um, what, what are you looking for in a writer when you, you, you want to take them on board? Um, Quality is probably the the first thing. Um, the, the, there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding generally about the, the kind of um, quality of books that are submitted to publishers and most people assume most of them are rubbish. But in fact, our experience is almost all of them are competent, uh, readable, out of acceptable quality and are as good as most books that are published in the world. But as a very small publisher, that level of 
competence and quality isn't enough for us. Mm-hmm. We need something slightly different, something slightly better, something that stands out in its own right and will have a chance of achieving uh, the only real way we can sell books, which is uh, relying on word of mouth. People read it, they tell other people this is a great book and they need to read it and that ripples out. But you need to have something exceptional for that to happen in any kind of scale. So we look for books that are high quality but um, are also going to uh, appeal to people and encourage people to uh, read them too. And in terms of spreading the word in that way, how have you found that that's changed? I know before we started I heard you talking about your reviews online and putting on um, Amazon reviews and things like that. And I think people still don't quite understand how important that sort of thing is for writers. But how have you found that it's changed over the years? It's it's changed quite dramatically and maybe in a minute uh, you could get Laurie to, to expand on, on, on the second point I'm going to make, but certainly you need a, an effective website to um, highlight your catalogue because um, the number of people that will Google Scottish publishers and come to their website, you need to be able to show them quickly the range that you've got and why they might be interested in them. Um, but the, the second change over the years has been the growth of social media mm-hmm. as a tool for promoting, and we use Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, but uh, Laurie knows more about the mechanics of that than I do. Well, since Sandy has mentioned Laurie and you sit in the corner, could you explain who you are and what your role is in England? Hello, uh, I'm the Assistant Managing Director, so I've been four or five months now, I've been trying to help Ringwood with the current state of the art, social media plan, marketing plan, event planning. So we have a few interns helping us out uh, and working directly with different authors each to work hand in hand with them, create events, help them with social media because most of them are not familiar with it, how it works, how to tag people, what kind of pictures to put online how to talk about your own book, how to be able to, yeah, how to be able to use it in a sensible manner, which is something even I am struggling with, though I'm, I grew up with it. So, I mean, I can understand for people that didn't grow up with it, how hard it can be. It's a, it's a side of things which is constantly evolving, I think. Um, you know, you could say, well, I understood that this week and within a month's time, something else has come along which has developed it further. Um, and you said you did writing course at Glasgow. Yeah, I, Was that side of things ever mentioned? Uh, not at all. Um, I did several courses at Glasgow. The main one was about planning and editing your novel and studying other novels. And I waste, well, didn't waste, but I spent a lot of time reading other things. Um, and my main problem was, and I never thought at the beginning, that you really need to be writing to a genre. If you want a big publisher, you do. And my book is a kind of coming of age. It's a nostalgic look at the 60s. Um, it's got romance in it, it's got a bit of disposing of bodies in it, so it's a mongrel. And so, as one agent in Edinburgh who I was put on to by Berlin, I think, said to me, um, the problem is I'm not sure where we'd market this. Yes. Because it's a, it's a mongrel. My second book, uh, which I'm just editing, is much more a murder mystery in a way. 
So this one was more difficult because it was a two-decade saga, really. Yeah. So, no, that wasn't mentioned. Um, I was already on Facebook, and um, I'd done a lot of writing for the Herald and medical press and stuff, and did a bit of radio work for the BMA and um, Left, Right and Centre, things like that, but years ago. Um, and in a way, if I had written the book on top of that, it would have been much easier to market because a lot of people have died off now. And I was 68 when... Um, Sandy and the, the crew offered me this contract. Um, so it was a steep learning curve to try and um, master uh, Instagram. And I'm trying different things. And it's interesting to see the response. You can even see a response in the sales after one Instagram. You know, yeah. And it's curious to find that there are doctors in Russia and Mexico and things looking at it. Uh, so I find it a very steep learning curve I'm still not, not very good but I know if Laura says she likes a post that I've done then that one's okay you're doing well you're you, doing okay? better than most uh, because um, it's to get the book out there which I realised is very difficult because I was used to doing stuff for the BME and getting almost instant responses sure. press conferences and things and you know a, a book from a small publisher uh, by some retired presumably slightly nutty XGP, was, is, is quite hard to, to market. Yeah. I, I think it's an interesting background, though, because uh, my family background's in uh, medicine as well, and there are many of my, my dad's friends who have said, oh, I wish I'd written that book, but you actually did it. Well, so you've got all these people who wish they'd done it who probably yeah. are dying to read well, your I, I wouldn't have. I don't think I could have written the book the way it is if I hadn't gone off and done a sabbatical at Oxford at 52. Right. And I did medical anthropology and I had to stand back and look at medicine from the outside. Or as my tutor said, I had to be deconstructed. <laughs> but it does mean that I could be critical in it of things that were then very wrong, many of which have changed, uh, particularly the views on women, homosexuality and uh, the career moves. Um, and I left hospital and went into general practice, which I loved, because there was no way you could get part-time work. And I decided uh, suddenly at 29, my biological clock said, I think I want a baby. So the kids came first, so I went into practice. Um, um, I was reading your kind of bio on the website and it said that you wanted to entertain and not write great literature, whatever well, that means. Well, I can't. Means. I'm too old. I'm too long away from that kind of thing. Um, though I was encouraged. I go, the, There's one chapter in the book, which is kind of the seminal chapter of the book, where there's unrequited love dis- declared there's a someone admits they burnt a body in an incinerator and all this sort of stuff. And that book got an A from someone at uni that I thought was a really hard taskmaster. So I thought, this book will be published, so I finished it. Uh, but it's, uh, it does contain a lot of me. There are some things that are true. I mean, we, my husband and I were invited to a free love party in a hospital that will remain nameless. Um, <laughs> and I was groped at the final year dinner. So, I mean, there are things in it that are true and stories that were given to me by by other people that I didn't believe. Mm. Uh, but it is a story, and it's the kind of book I like to read because it's got a lot of characters in it. Uh, some of the editors thought too many characters in it, um, and a lot of things happen. But it gives a coloured picture of Glasgow, the NHS, and the state of women. There are no books about women doctors. Yeah. They're only token, token ones in Doctor in the House, or they're pioneers, or they're pathologists like... Um, Tess Gerritsen and stuff so it's not really any books about women doctors I, I, I'm interested in this idea that um, you're told increasingly you have to fit a genre to fit on the correct bookshelves in Waterstones or whatever like that Sandy, um, reading kind of um, themes that you have on the front page of the, the website 
you have politics, football, religion, three things that you're told not to touch in this city in particular, and then money, sex, and crime. And I like the fact that you put crime at the end, but in terms of Ringwood, is that something that you had to think about? You thought, no, if this is good, if it's quality, we are going to publish it. Yeah, I mean, it was an awareness amongst the initial group that these were the key issues around Scotland, politics, religion, football, which is the main Scottish cultural uh, dominant form, um, and uh, you never get away from sex, money and crime anyway. So we, we All the bases are covered. Rather than avoid these, we would uh, face it and say we would welcome submissions that uh, tackle all these issues in, in a Scottish context. And um, in terms of the submission process as it is uh, now for Ringwood, do, is it just a case of people, I mean, is it set out on the website? Um, it's set out in the website. We uh, have a separate email address, submissions at ringwoodpublishing.com, and we ask uh, that manuscripts be sent to us. We quickly dispense with this sort of traditional publishing thing, send us three chapters and we'll decide. We quickly found that was nonsense. Um, right. We we wanted a rounded picture of what the book was, so we asked for a draft, not the final draft, because obviously there'll be a lot of work done, but a, a draft that goes from the beginning to the end that gives us an opportunity to assess whether that book has the potential uh, that what we are looking for. And uh, Anne, you mentioned there briefly that uh, um, some editors thought that maybe you had too many characters. And I've, as someone who edited previously, I know that relationship can be tense at times. How have you found that kind of relationship? Well, no, there wasn't really any tension. I think um, the only kind of problem I saw, which we solved after a while, was that um, relationships between particularly guys and girls were quite different in those days. Mm-hmm. And uh, they quite often they would say, well, can you say that? I said, well, you couldn't say that nowadays, but you could be very critical, or men would say that to women in 1967 when the book starts, the summer of love. Not that Glasgow was in any way a swinging 60s city. So, so no, I mean, it was all very amical, and they came up with things, and they would find that I had um, misnamed someone. I mean, at one point, I had a character visiting this old lady, and uh, I was told, well, he can't. And I said, well, why can't he? Well, because he died two chapters before. You put the wrong name. <laughs> it's not Frank, it's James. You know, so little things like that. Because yeah. when you're continually editing, even if you read it out, as I was talking, you can make mistakes. But when I saw the Ringwood website, because I, I did the research and everyone before I submitted, and I saw that they had their six things, um, I've got everything except politics. And I think we've got enough of politics just now. Um, because it takes in the Ivorix disaster mm-hmm. for the football. Um, there's certainly a fair bit of sex. One of the girls did think I should augment sex scenes, but I said, no, just use your imagination. It's, I'm short of word count. And um, the, uh, certainly the money and the, 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 the other um, uh, things that they list as being Scottish obsessions or uh, interests um, are uh, in the book. So I thought, well, maybe it does fit. I'll send it off. Um, and... You said, Sandy, that you find that a lot of the books that get sent to you are actually this this myth that there's lots of terrible writing being sent around the place is a bit of a myth. And I, I completely agree with you that actually there's a lot of good writing out there that just hasn't been given the chance. 
Do you think that's at all to do with the kind of growth of writing classes, or do you think that was always the case? I, I, I suspect it's always been the case, um, but it was easier in the past for really good writing to, to find a publisher. It, it, it's certainly much more difficult, which, and given the, the growing numbers of people who are writing, um, in, instead of being uh, one in a relatively small pool, it, it, even very good books are one in a, in a large pool and it's it's much uh, harder. Um, we we try to um, be uh, realistic with people whose books we are not going to publish. Um, we we use phrases like just because uh, it's not suitable for us doesn't mean it won't be suitable mm-hmm. for other publishers. And particularly books that get past their first stage, we say we. We recognise the merit of this book, but on balance, it's not one we want to proceed with, but we'd encourage you to uh, keep on trying. On you go. No, I was just going to say that I believe there's something like 100,000 books produced worldwide, because that includes a lot of, every year, yeah. which includes um, a lot of non-fiction, obviously, as well. Um, but if you really want to be a success, you have to be probably in Love Island or something, write a book and have a big celebrity following. And that's the way things have gone, I think. And um, when you uh, first started sending it out to publishers and you got the, the thanks but no thanks kind of letters, you clearly didn't let it put you off and you said you had belief that this book would find a home. Yes, well, I think I, I think my belief and the people round about me who'd read, a lot of which were friends, but some of whom were friends of friends and had no reason particularly sure. to say we think this is um, good, was the fact that there wasn't anything recording this, this kind of experience of women in medicine. Because I think people have thought for a long time that it's a very equal field. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, in 1967, only 34-35% of the intake was women. Um, and, uh, and when I went to Greenock as a GP... I was the only um, sort of full-time female GP. There was one other person uh, in the area who did sessions, but uh, they, at all the meetings and everything, it was just entirely men. And I was actually told at the first lunch I went to that women had no place in medicine and that if he did his way, they would be barefoot, pregnant and in the kitchen. So, I, I, I mean, there, there's a lot of stuff in it which is, which is really true, and I felt it needed recorded, and that the best way to do it, because I couldn't have done a book like Andrew Kay's great book, about being a junior doctor because I didn't want to mention people's names or right. you know so everything has changed there are terrific clinicians that taught me who are in the book as someone else but other than them the characters are all made up um, what I often find when people do fictionalised accounts of things have you had people saying that's me isn't it well a number of my year who came to the reunion well the first comment was one of the boys said I never got my leg over when I was there. You know, how did this happen? <laughs> uh, you know, what was I missing? And I said, look, it's a story, Jim, it's a story. Um, but I think uh, there are some people who've uh, read it just to see who it is. Um, but no one is recognisable that I've used as a template. I invented the characters and I lived with them for about four months before yeah. I started writing. So because I knew everything about them. I think uh, you, you said that you got to know the characters as you were writing them, the first three, it wasn't you. Yeah. You didn't come with an idea of like, here's the structure of my first three chapters or anything like no. that. It was like, where are these people going to take me? Yes. I think that we had, the, had the, like um, Ringwood had themes, I had themes, that the dynamics that affected us were private and state schooling, 
where religious differences even, because um, the Protestants and Catholics in Glasgow don't meet mm -hmm. in school. Um, there were various other themes which were the themes of race and sexual proclivity and um, gender. So these themes uh, were in the back of my mind and I had a thing pinned up in front of me with things I want, you know, as I went, you know, have I brought that out? Um, so it was trying to give, I think it's George Eliot who said that a novel should try to be the best account of the moral complexity of the day. Sounds a bit pompous, but um, I was told that at one of the writing classes and I had that written up. Moral, it, is, it was a very, a, a time of totally changing sexual and social mores. Yeah. Everything. I mean, women didn't go into pubs, you know, women didn't have sex for marriage, women couldn't get the pill if they were on the NHS, if you were unmarried, um, with no mobile phones, research with cards in a library, you know, uh, discussing that. Uh, Laura was there, I talked with students at university today, and uh, they think this is just a very alien world. They're quite interested in it. And I guess um, there's moral, social moral complexities of that time, but in medicine, there's a different set of moral complexities as well. And medical ethics is a big theme of it. And in fact, the, the two books, the first one really is about the ethics of um, ambition being not just fame and fortune and getting as many women as you can because people think you're a uh, high-powered surgeon. And the second book is really about the duty of care and uh, you, the power of life over death, which doctors have, which uh, increasingly we find little snippets saying that it is abused here and there, not just with adult treatment. Mm -hmm. There's been a few lately as well. Um, Sandy, could you talk a little bit about some of your other writers? Because you've kept it like in a small group of writers. Is that fair to say? Yeah, we, we're constrained by our uh, size. Mm -hmm. um, and can I make one point, of course. which sums the thing up? Um, we're sometimes referred to as a note-for-profit publisher. Mm -hmm. We are not a note-for-profit publisher. We are a publisher who never makes a profit. Which <laughs> is significantly yes. psychologically <laughs> different. But our aim only is that each book washes its face and uh, the money from it uh, finances the, the, a subsequent book. So so we, we could never, for example, bring out five or six books at the one time. We uh, aim to publish between six or eight a year and, and uh, that takes over. But it's given our philosophy of giving... Uh, our signed up authors uh, a commitment to publish the future books uh, the numbers of uh, second books and third books um, reduces the number of new books so we, we don't rapidly expand our pool of authors and do you think um, that's perhaps where you have why you have survived your others and we've mentioned a couple of them earlier on have not this for some companies, uh, not just in, in uh, publishing, but in other areas as well, there seems to be this great desire to uh, expand exponentially and actually that's where things go wrong and it happens in the restaurant world. I've seen that happen as well. Is that something that you've thought, no, let's not go beyond the means here? Yeah, well, we, we've, uh, in 20 years, we've never... Uh, had an overdraft or never been in deficit but we've never had more than a few thousand pounds so mm -hmm. um, frankly I do not understand how any publisher survives and in fact most of them only survive because they're subsidised by other branches 
of the conglomerate that they're, they're members of. And uh, it, it's been heartbreaking to see publishers like Freight who try to be a bit more ambitious and then mm-hmm. plunge the ground. We only survive um, basically for one reason. We've got a group of committed um, people who, who run it uh, while doing other jobs so therefore they don't take salaries and that includes me in that group mm-hmm. and we're only able to operate the scale we are because we rely on uh, interns both full-time interns like uh, Laurie and uh, a group of part-time interns who, who help with the editing and copywriting marketing and development if we paid uh, the going rate for all these staff, we would have been bankrupt in six months. Right. That's so we exploit people um, <laughs> with the best role in the world. But the only reason we can sleep at night for doing that is because publishing is now such a cutthroat business. Even bottom tier jobs get four or five hundred applicants. Yes, I and if you absolutely. don't have relevant experience, you won't even get interviewed yeah. far less than yeah. Point. So we have quite a good track record of giving our interns a very relevant experience because in, in many publishing, interns make the tea, do the filing and work their way through the bottom end of the slush pile. In Ringwood, they get real responsibilities, editing, copywriting. So really skills and experience. So that experience gets them in and we've, we, we've got a, a good record of our interns becoming uh, members of, of bigger publishers, for example, the uh, managing director's couple uh, before uh, Laurie now works for HarperCollins, mm-hmm. others work in bigger publishers in Scotland and, and in England, but uh, without that group of very talented, very committed young people being prepared to do these jobs for nothing, we couldn't survive. And I, I might interject here and say that the, 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 well, largely girls, but there's some lads too that I've had. I mean, they're very highly qualified in what they've done, you know, so it's not that you've been lucky, you've been very clever at who you've chosen. Um, and there are many people with extremely good degrees who um, are working for them and who have a very enthusiastic, I think that's another thing. I know people who've been with bigger publishers and there's not the enthusiasm or the... The, uh, the the will to get back to you immediately or to be frank and say, you know, that's nonsense. I don't think you can say that. Or even just the relationship, I think, with a writer. You know, if one editor's looking after multiple writers, then it is difficult. Whereas mm-hmm. if you've got a more of a one-to-one mm-hmm. relationship, I think that can be uh, greatly important. Um, so that's, as we mentioned at the beginning, you've been going for 20 years. What kind of changes have you seen over those 20 years in publishing? We've spoken about social media and that side of things. When, when we first started, um, the, the pattern uh, for almost all publishers was about 95%, at least, of their books were sold uh, through trade sources, i.e. they were sold in, in bookshops. Um, as a small publisher, from the beginning, we found it extremely difficult to get into bookshops, particularly mm-hmm. since Wasserstone's went. When we started, Wasserstone's managers were allowed to order books. I could walk into a bookshop 
with a case of 20 books and sell them to the manager. But they introduced a system where ordering was done centrally yeah, yeah. for the whole of Scotland. But even worse, the, any books ordered from a Scottish publisher have to be sent to England mm-hmm. to then be distributed to the the uh, Scottish bookshop. So it's managed. Instead of me going half a mile into the city centre and hand books over, these books do a 500-mile round journey. Uh, and the, the the control of ordering is removed from the, the local shops. So it's been much harder uh, since we started to get into places like Waterson's. And now trade sales through bookshops um, are uh, a small percentage of our overall sales. Most of our sales are either... Uh, internet through a website, internet through Amazon or through direct sales through events that we organise mm-hmm. and, and promote and that, that's been a major change. And I think increasingly, hopefully, people are beginning to realise that, uh, and you might agree with me or not, that the best place to buy, whether it's books or whether it's music or anything like that, is from the people themselves because that's where the, most of the money then goes, whereas everywhere else, some places, as we know, is a huge... Take and, and, and don't, don't get me started. On that. <laughs> I wouldn't. I haven't even mentioned them. Yes, I was just going to say something, and that is, um, I'm quite hampered by trying to get local sales due to the fact that in Inverclyde uh, there is not a single bookshop. There's That's a small right. W H Smith and Largs. There is nothing between us and Paisley. Is that right? Yes, wow. there's nothing. Mm-hmm. And there's some small shops, uh, sort of little second-hand shops mm-hmm. and stuff. But there is nowhere to market my book in my whole area. Which is a pity because I have 10,000 patients, but I don't know who I might be able to put a picture on. Say, oh, this is my book. Yeah. There's nowhere. And it's a, it's a big, I mean, that's it's why this, yeah. um, I pick up books when I'm in Waterstones and Agile Street. But it's not. The, the other major change since we started is the um, e books. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we now, well, we always have um, simultaneously to launching books and paperback because we quickly decided the hardback market was for dinosaurs mm-hmm. we've never produced a hardback yeah, yeah, market yeah. and all our books are called original paperbacks but we simultaneously produced them in ebook and that opens up the possibilities mm-hmm. for the doctors in Russia and Australia and mm-hmm. the Scottish diaspora and New- Australia New Zealand, South Africa, Canada and um, we do a significant percentage of our sales are e-books. Um, and uh, funnily enough, we make as much profit from an e-book as we do from a paperback. Mm, that is Because the production costs are virtually zero. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've already done all the editing and everything else. Uh, and with the increasing commission that bookshops take and the Amazon take, we actually get more from selling an e-book for £5 than we do for selling a paperback for £10. That's very interesting. And I know you said that's, you know, we're talking about um, uh, medical dramas being written by women being rare. Have you found that there's been a reach around the world from that? Yeah, well, um, certainly I, I know of people who've bought in Australia and Canada and, uh, and whatever, uh, but the um, the ebook to me, I mean, I like a, a physical book, 
but for many people, um, e-books are the way to go, the read and travelling, and even audiobooks, I've got a friend who's considered helping me with that, um, and I know my daughter in London, a lot of her friends, they plug into a book, you read it when you're commuting, yeah, rather yeah. than uh, have, carrying a physical book or um, reading a, catching about a Kindle or an iPad. Uh, but I think that the uh, e-books do have their place. They said that e-book sales were falling and, and uh, book sales were rising, but I think the e-book is here to stay. Um, and, I, and it went out before my paperback did. Yeah. Um, and I can, uh, you don't get the actual figures, but you can see the graph on, um, although that can become addictive and it changes every two hours so you can get very upset. Yes, yes, all of these uh, yes. analytics can uh, become addictive. Yes, but uh, no, I think e-books are, are here to stay and I think it's a... Uh, um, doesn't, to my opinion, doesn't supplant proper physical books. No. I think, like, a lot of these things, it finds a, a, a plateau. You know, we were told a few years ago that Kindle was going to be the king and, and the book was on its way out, on the printed world. And uh, and I think, you know, that's turned out not to be the case. Something that's been going for as long as the printed world is not going anywhere soon. And it's interesting to hear recently that magazines are making a comeback after they're kind of falling off the edge. Um... You mentioned events, uh, Sandy, that you also sell books through events. What sort of events are you putting on? Are we talking about book launches? or? Yeah, our basic model starts with, with a physical book launch. Mm-hmm. Many publishers have abandoned uh, physical launches because they were uh, getting half a dozen people attending if they mm-hmm. were lucky. But for us... Uh, Given that we're almost uh, exclusively talking about first-time authors, uh, the book launch is actually a big uh, event. Yes, absolutely. It's it's important, and people's family and social network um, want to to support them at the launch. So um, we always go with a buying launch and, Mm -hmm. and... we find that that normally sells enough books to recover all the production costs, and then thereafter uh, we're relying on uh, internet sales and uh, trade sales. Um, but over the last couple of years, we've we've um, started trying to organise more events, maybe around about themes. Uh, for example, we have several books by women about different family uh, models um, and we had an event uh, recently where the the three authors of these books about extremely different family models uh, came and, and spoke and we sold a fair number of books there but uh, Laurie's in charge of our marketing maybe she should yeah, I'm interested how you see book marketing at the moment because it's a, it's a, a, a as Sandy says often that the old fashioned book launch, particularly if it's someone that's on their third or fourth book and you know they've kind of worn out the the friendships and the, uh, things like that. How do you see it changing? Book launches are big for the author and yeah. for the friends. It's sure. it's a great event, but then I mean that's just a beginning yeah. then you have to market it on the long run which is harder and I mean the events we try to find something original a theme to to have a question I mean people like to be uh, to have a a specific theme to be discussed they like to get out there and to talk about books and to bring, bring friends I mean we think that it's quite lost but in the end it works we just need to find the right 
person to market it to and and to get it out there and people will get out especially in Glasgow I mean four pints and people will move <laughs> <laughs> if you find the right place that's right uh, venues are very important mm-hmm. but what about um, uh, in getting involved in festivals I think there are now more book festivals in Scotland than uh, there have ever been before is that something that's easy to get into as a small publisher or not? No, definitely not. There's we a lot have, of shaking of the heads going yeah, on. Yeah, we, we, we have a list of all the festivals and, and book prizes, but it's more and more difficult to get into it. There are always deadlines that you somehow miss, even though you were looking forward to mm. it. You need to go through specific qualifications in order to, to be able to be there and... For example, Anne's book was, I mean, we were thinking of crime festivals, mm-hmm. but it doesn't fit because it's not exactly. properly crime. So Second if, one, what do you? I mean, that's why it's difficult because, I mean, they're so specific that, I mean, if you have an original book that goes a bit all over the place with di- very different themes, you can't really market it for that kind of festival. Yeah, yeah. One other thing that really surprised me when I looked, because um, I was looking at books which had won prizes and things, I'm looking at putting books in. Uh, my book was runner-up in a Scottish Association of Writers prize last year called The Constable Silver Star. But a lot of these other things, when you actually read the um, requirements and you get done, a lot of them require a lot of money. Publishers put a lot of money up mm-hmm. for a lot to enter books into these things. Yeah. It's just not on for a small publisher. Mm-hmm. And there are many, many marketing things that require a lot of money. Yeah, even even if we found because it, it's always your secret fantasy, you're <laughs> going to find this novel that's going to win the Booker Prize. Even if we found that book of that quality, we couldn't afford to enter it in the Booker Prize. At the later grand. stages, it's seven grand. That, that's our budget for the next three years. Yes, the, uh, the hidden costs that people just yeah. don't realise. No, it's like people don't realise how important reviews are. I, I, to be honest, until I started writing. I only ever put a review on if I absolutely adored a book. Mm-hmm. Whereas now, if I really think it's got something interesting to say, I'll put it in. Yeah, 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 absolutely. It's hugely important for mm-hmm. writers to get... Because um, uh, apart from anything else, people check them out, but also on certain websites, which we won't mention, the kind of algorithms of just having a yeah. five-star or a four-star mm-hmm. review takes it into another level as well. Mm-hmm. It's a complicated business. Algorithms, <laughs> Because one of the, the major changes, certainly, uh, since I, when I was a boy, uh, oh, it seemed like almost every novel got a review in the uh, local or national press. Most uh, newspapers have stopped reviewing books altogether, and even your so-called uh, more intellectual ones, the Herald and the Scotsman, have drastically reduced the numbers of books they review and they give priority to the big names and the big publishing houses. Yeah, that's right. We find it extremely difficult to get our local national paper, the Herald, to review our books. There's a new literary editor there and we're hoping she'll have a, a more democratic approach. But I know that uh, the reviews in The Scotsman, which I think used to be a page or a double page, have gone down to like a tiny little section. Um, which uh, which I think is is crazy because there are still people who uh, love to read and and are looking for the next new thing to read and it's it's very short sighted in my opinion. Um, so you've mentioned that your next book is going to be crime Anne. 
Can you tell us a little bit about that, or is that... No, no. Um, well, as I say, the first book, um, there's a villain. Uh, it was a couple of villains, but one's more evil than the other one, and he's into fame and fortune and, and um, ladies. The second book concerns uh, the same protagonist, narrator, Beth, a girl from Govan, and she is now working as a GP in uh, Bear's Den Guy, and she starts suspecting that one of the local doctors is uh, not what he seems, mm-hmm. and there are several suspicious deaths which she brings to the attention of the police who visit the chap and think it's all hunky-dory and that she's obviously up her head and they do nothing about it. And that mirrors, in fact, what happened with Shipman because a female GP and a local funeral director went to the police saying, not only does this guy seem to have more deaths than usual, but he's had several in his surgery. And I don't know anyone who has had a death in the surgery. Right, that's Very interesting. Right. So, um, so that follows her and it involves her young family, her teenage girls as well, uh, the story. And... Um, I uh, I think it's of great interest to Glasgow as well, but it does make you. As I was doing it, I realised how many ways there are to probably kill somebody uh, <laughs> and not be detectable. Um, although you have to watch what you search for with Google's <laughs> algorithms. Um, I was obviously researching lots of poisons and things, uh, but then at one point I was trying to find out where the saunas were in Edinburgh for part of the plot because my husband's a long time since he lived in Edinburgh. He went to Harriet Watt. Um, and after that I was playing a game of solitaire on my iPad one night and up comes um, well I won't say on, on air what it was it said but it was adverts for local sex things and I thought how have I got that and it was at the writers group in Glasgow they said have you been researching something about saunas or I said yeah well that's where it's come from there'll be people listening to this still that'll be my excuse I'm researching a book <laughs> don't you know <laughs> and Sandy what's um, your plans for the future for Ringwood just continue what's uh, what's happening. Well, very interesting. We had a, a board meeting last night where the board oh, asked themselves exactly mm-hmm. that question, and there was a, a lot of debate and discussion because it, I mean, it is very very hard for a publisher our size, and we we uh, cannot grow and. Uh, if if we shrink, then we disappear. So sure. it's a very uh, difficult balance. But certainly, we're hoping to continue um, the, the, the sort of three strands. New books by uh, first authors of quality. We're bringing one out inference in, in July, which will prove, I think, very interesting. Uh, a sort of gaslighting in Scotland mm-hmm. book. Um, uh, so that's one strand. The second strand is uh, follow-up books by our existing writers, and we've got a couple completed uh, by uh, Charlie Sharkey and Alec Gordon, who's a famous football writer, but also writes fiction. And then hopefully there'll be a new wave of uh, Anne and Frank Woods and other of our authors now currently writing their, their second book. And the third strand, um, we started off exclusively as fiction, but we realised that Scottish themes encompass non-fiction. Um, and we've, we've 
produced two or three very good, very interesting and quite well-selling uh, non-fiction books, one about walks in Ireland related to the geology of the island, one about um, uh, one of our authors who climbed every Monroe in Scotland in 49 days, which uh-huh. is quite an effort. He's a legend in the hill-walking community and that book has sold very well because everybody in Scotland thinks they're capable at least of climbing one Monroe. <laughs> the thought of doing seven a day for seven weeks is just mind-blowing and the book captures that. But uh, in the next few months we're quite excited we're going to bring out which is something similar to that um, uh, called a whiskey odyssey of, mm-hmm. of, of an ordinary uh, man, not a specialist in drink or anything, who uh, walked and travelled around every distillery in Scotland and he's written up his findings oh, and um, produced several whiskey routes. Uh, so we, we expect there to be a, a, a lot of interest in that book. I thought you were going to say seven whiskies a day for seven. <laughs> <laughs> if you take the route seriously, that's what's involved. That's what's involved. Rather uh, healthier. Well, you have to, to walk. The, you, have to uh, walk. you have to walk to them. And that, that sounds like my husband's birthday present, Sandy. I'll take the first copy. <laughs> uh, well, I think that is the perfect place to leave it. So thank you very much, Laura. Thank you, Anne. And thank you, Sandy, for joining us today. And we'll be back soon with somebody completely different. Cheers. Mm-hmm.